Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 95, Golden Age. So we last stopped with Pope John VI dying in 1216 AD and leaving an empty patriarchy for the next 20 years. A period that saw the institutional structure and the power of the Coptic Church crumble, where eventually bishops and clergy died and they were never replaced. By the time a patriarch was ordained in 1235, there would be no more than four to five bishops alive in the whole of Egypt, down from a peak of more than a hundred. Remarkably so, as the institutional power of the church crumbled, a class of laymen, men of letters, stepped up to fill the gap, producing a burst of scholarship, one that was able to sustain the Coptic community for the next few centuries, as it was about to enter into a long and dark tunnel that was the Mamluk period. We will get to these men of letters in a second, but before we do, I would like to wrap up Al-Adil Reign, who, despite 20 years of constant campaigning with his old brother Salahuddin, followed by another 20 years of intense diplomacy with the Franks, when he died, the last news that he got was that there was a great crusading army that just landed in Egypt, and all what he had built was being threatened. You see, as Sultan, Al-Adil had one overriding foreign policy goal, that is, to avoid another crusade at all costs. He opened up trading routes, constantly tried to avoid conflict with the Frankish kingdoms next door, and really went out of his way abusing European merchants. Nonetheless, fate was not on his side. Over in Rome, the BBC ended up occupied by a certain innocent desert, who really took crusading to its peak constantly organizing all kinds of crusades against European pagans, Spanish Muslims, and even Constantinople. Also, to be fair, that Constantinople thing was just a badly organized adventure that went out of his hand. These crusades are irrelevant to our story. What is relevant is the last crusade he organized before dying, the Fifth Crusade, directed against Egypt and set to take place in 1217 right as a truce with the Ayyubids was set to expire. And to connect everything together, this is just a year out after Jean died. As always, the Fifth Crusade had multiple complex layers to it, including a German emperor who used the Crusades as a leverage to deal with the Bibisi, with one foot in the Levant but really two eyes in Europe, as well as the usual shortcomings of divided command, shifting objectives, ignorance of the terrain, and tenuous lines of supply and communication. Nonetheless, this one had a sound strategy. Take Egypt first, and then Jerusalem, as well as it had the benefit of better resources than most other crusades. And so, initially, it was very successful. Landing in Dometa in May 1218, and taking Al-Adil by surprise, who was busy by an ineffective attempt by one of Salah al-Din's son to take Aleppo. So he couldn't come right away, leaving the defense of Egypt to his son al-Kamil, who was competent 
but obviously had limited resources without his father being around. Now, Dameta is a port city on the Mediterranean, essentially surrounded by water and a very hard place to take. I posted a map and Patreon for those who are interested. But on the north there was the Mediterranean, east of the Meta was the Nile, and west was a large lake. They took the north, i.e. the Mediterranean, with their superior navy, and camped on the west side, between the lake and the city. Al-Kamil for his part, not willing to engage them, came from the south and camped on the east side, essentially leaving the Nile as a barrier between the two armies and the east side of the city open to be supplied. The Crusader navy, while in Syria, could leave the Mediterranean and go to the Nile, threatening Al-Kamil camp and completing a full encirclement of the Meta, it kinda really couldn't, as there was a large chain across the Nile from the walls of the city to a fortified island, then to the other side, preventing ships from going into the Nile. So this whole summer was spent on one objective, take that island and break the chain, which would then open the entire Nile Valley to the Franks. So, after a mighty struggle, it finally happened, on August 24, 1218. Dameta was now completely surrounded, and the Nile Valley was open to the Crusader ships. Al-Adil, when informed, fell into a state of dread, and started his journey toward Egypt. A week later, he died on the road, in his seventies, leaving power in the same fashion he assumed it, on the heels of a Frankish invasion in Egypt. Quite poetic. He needed not to dread too much, so. It was late August, which means the Nile was about to flood, making moving in the Delta super difficult for any army, let alone one that was not familiar with the train. And by the time the Nile subsides, it would be deep winter, where the ships coming from Europe with supplies, food, and fresh men will stop coming. Again, putting a chill in any grand invasion plans. So, when Al-Adil died, his son in Egypt had probably close to half a year to consolidate his rule and figure out what to do with the Frankish army in the Meta. Unfortunately for him, he too didn't really have to work super hard on the Frankish problem, as they were about to take care of themselves. This was in large part to a new feature in this crusade. Thanks to the zeal and the sponsorship of Pope Innocent, the crusade was well funded and supported by an extensive fleet. This meant that crusaders were able to return to Europe anytime without much difficulty. And in the same time, new troops can arrive from the west to replace them, also pretty easily. So, on the face of it, this seemed like a good idea, since you always need fresh men. But the reality was, as winter approached, men went home and were never replaced. It also allowed for a constant change in the leadership of the crusade. If you are a frontline knight, one day you have to answer to the king of Jerusalem, and the next you are answering to some newly arrived cardinal from Europe who has no clue what he was doing. This cardinal was a certain Pelagius, coming just as the summer ended, and forcefully taking charge of the crusade as a representative of the Pope. And so, 
for the next eight months, the Franks just sat around the Meta, not storming the city, as there weren't enough men to do that, nor crossing the Nile and attacking Al Kamil. Again, a dicey proposition, given the logistics of crossing a major river where an opposing army is waiting for you on the other side. They waited and waited, for something, anything, to move the needle. A rumor spread that the German emperor was in his way, but that quickly was quished as he let it known that the earliest that he can come would be in two years. And even then, this wasn't really truthful. For him, this whole crusade thing was just a way to pressure the papacy as part of an extensive back and forth negotiations between them. Then, after that, a living saint appeared in the camp. St. Francis of Assisi arrived in a ship from Europe, making his way to Egypt in the tattered clothes of a holy man, committed to a vow of poverty. He went in there, believing that he could bring peace to the world and success for the crusade by converting the Muslims to Christianity. And so, in a lot of hostilities, he crossed over to the Muslim camp and implored the confused Egyptian soldiers to lead him to Al-Kamil. The soldiers, taking him for a mad but harmless fool, took him to Al-Kamil for what amounted to be an entertaining audience. There, San Francis offered to show the power of Christianity by walking through fire and coming out unharmed. Al-Kamil, to the great disappointment of his court, told him, no thanks, not today. After which, the saint returned to the camp, then eventually to Europe, having converted no one. That's the version right after he died and was canonized anyway. As you would expect, Arabic and Coptic sources do not mention him at all, and European eyewitness accounts just mention a brief four-day visit to the Muslim camp by the saint, with no details. So yeah, did St. Francis end up in Egypt preaching Christianity in the middle of a war? Probably. Did he get to meet the Sultan personally and challenge him via trial of fire? Maybe. Anyway, for us, the siege continued all the way through the summer to September 1219, where the Nile did not flood as expected, and Al-Kamil started to really worry. He could handle the Franks, and he could handle a famine, but both together were a heavy lift, and so he made the Crusaders a deal that they cannot refuse. He will give up Jerusalem, and most of Palestine, plus the True Cross and a yearly tribute. And all the Crusaders have to do is leave Egypt and go back to Europe. Pretty good deal, right? Especially as the Franks were stuck in a siege without an end in sight for a year and a half now. They didn't take it so. Cardinal Pelagius pushed to continue the war, supported by the Venetians, who eyed the riches of Egypt and didn't care one bit about Jerusalem, plus the Timblers and the Hospitallers, who again were heavily involved in trade and perhaps overconfident in their militaristic abilities. So it makes sense that these guys would not take the deal. But the cardinal refusal was a bit strange, given that most of the political leaders in the crusade were for it. Bart overconfidence that God stands on his side, 
Bart naivety concerning the intentions of the German emperor, and Bart plain old incompetence. By his refusal, he had doomed the crusade. By November, 18 months now into the siege, Damieta's population and garrison were decimated from starvation. A simple ladder did the trick and the city fell, where the crusaders were confronted by a ghastly sight. As one of the sources put it, quote, They found a street strewn with the bodies of the dead, wasting away from disease and famine. As they searched the city house by house, dying civilians, Copts and Muslims, were discovered lying in bits next to the corpses of their loved ones and children. War had extracted its toll. Nonetheless, the Franks celebrated their victory and immediately baptized whatever few children had survived to this point. Al-Kamil, for his part, retreated to the next city and heavily fortified his position, carefully picking a spot just south of a junction between the Nile and a secondary branch, i.e. an approaching army would be bent down between two branches of the Nile, perhaps as a way to induce the Franks to reconsider his terms. The Crusaders, on the other hand, well, they did nothing. First, they fought among themselves who will hold the Mieta, now that it had fallen. Then, they fought on whether to continue the invasion or come to favorable terms with Al-Kamil. And it took a while. It was, as Thomas Asbridge put it, quote, an unprecedented feat of woeful indecision. To keep the men from leaving, the cardinal went to all kind of extremes, including circulating an Arabic book, which obviously no one can read, as a prophetic book that declared that the Fifth Crusade would be brought to victory under the leadership of, quote, a great king from the West. Anyway, nothing really happened all the way until July 1221, where the German emperor finally sent an advanced unit to signal his potential arrival. Again, very likely he had no plans of coming, but this was all part of a back-and-forth convoluted diplomacy was wrong. The cardinal also, again, taking a very strange decision, decided to finally leave the Mieta and go to Al-Kamil in his defensive camp. At a very bad time, as the Nile was expected to flood in August, where not only they will be bent down between the two branches of the river, they may end up stranded and completely surrounded by water if they did not move fast enough. By July 24th, they were still a few days away from Al-Kamil camp, and the king of Jerusalem, sidelined by the cardinal so far, swore up and down that they should retreat now and avoid a disaster where the Nile floods around them. Naturally so, he was ignored. Finally, they arrived at August 10th, just as the Nile flood was beginning. Farther shooting themselves in the foot, rather than see what was about to happen and scramble a retreat, it was decided that the best plan was to make a fortified camp. Two weeks later, as the Nile flood was reaching its peak, Al-Kamil ordered that the water gates used to control the flow of the water be opened. 
and suddenly the Franks and their fortified camp were left wading in water up to their waist. That was it. They were stranded and surrounded by water all around them. Two days later, the cardinal sent for Al-Kamil inquiring what would be the terms of surrender. Al-Kamil, in the mold of his father, and really hoping to avoid ever seeing ships coming from Europe again, gave them pretty lenient terms. The Meta was to be returned back, and the Franks were to release their prisoners, and that's it. They could go back to Europe alive. No tribute, no ransom, not even a promise not to come back again. Was Al-Kamil naive? Probably not. From all accounts, he seemed like he knew what what was he doing. He had a big, difficult-to-govern empire to take care of, with a slew of ambitious family members lurking in the background. So, achieving friendly relations with Europe would go a long way in consolidating his rule. Should he have extracted a formal truce involving the German emperor? Probably, but it is unlikely to have been respected anyway. The point for us, as discussed last week, Christian armies fighting in Egypt under the banner of the cross was immensely destructive to the Coptic population. This crusade was followed by a wave of conversion to escape the social pressures, and it wasn't really coming from Al-Kamil or, you know, some big central authority in the government. No, it was really the day-to-day interactions with their neighbors that supplied the social pressures to convert. Anyway, to close up this crusading story, six years later, the German emperor finally arrived to the Holy Land after being excommunicated by Rome. Again, this is all part of convoluted European politics that we will not get into. Just know that he was there, but had no appetite for holy wars. Similarly, Al-Kamil also has no appetite for holy wars and a practical approach to governing attached no special meaning to Jerusalem. And so, after a period of back-and-forth negotiations, in February 1229, the German emperor agreed terms with the Ayyubid Sultan. In return for a 10-year truce and his military protection against all enemies, even Christians, Al-Kamil gave away Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Nazareth. Together was a corridor of land linking the holy city with the coast. Jerusalem was back under Latin control, returned as fate would have it by an excommunicated emperor fighting under the banner of the cross. Like I said earlier, history can be quite poetic. Now, to end this episode, I would like to go back to the laymen of Flitters who produced a burst of scholarship as the patriarchy laid empty. This is a difficult topic as there are many individuals who show up in the narrative as these men of litter, each with his own significant small contribution. It is nearly impossible to list all of them, with all the details that we know about them, and what they contributed. So instead, you should just take that as a representative sample. It is not everybody, but enough to convey the message. The first is a whole family, four brothers and a father known as Aulad al-Assel, literally, the sons of the honey merchant. They came originally from the village of Sediment in modern Bani Suif, 
and were very prominent right in this period that we are in. Peaking in terms of scholarly contribution around 1230 AD, and dying as the Ayyubid dynasty came to an end in and around 1250 AD. In the manner of the Ayyubids, they were known by their titles rather than their names. The father was al Katib al Masri, the Egyptian scribe. The eldest was known as al Safi, followed by al Ashad, followed by al Mu'tamir. And the last son, rising to the very top of the Ayyubid's bureaucracy, was al Amjad where, at some point, he ran the finances of the army. Unlike his brother and father, he was a very important man politically, but had no scholarly contribution that we know of. We do know the most about Al-Safi, who served as a counterweight to Cyril, and wrote the most extensive medieval Coptic canons, known as Al-Magma al-Safawi, commissioned by a synod of bishops, who wished to curtail the corruption of Cyril. We will get to these details next week. Just know for now that his canons were so widespread and adopted that they ended up being the core of the civil and religious law in Ethiopia. And that wasn't just his contribution. In 1232, summarized and revised a book containing 88 homilies of St. John Chrysostom on the Gospel of John. Three years later, he had another book, a commentary on the Gospel of St. Matthew. By 1238, he published his canons, and ended up deeply involved in the administration of the church, as Cyril slowly stepped away. The second brother, Al-Ashad, was behind the first Gospel translation into Arabic, by a Copt. It wasn't the first Arabic translation, as Christians in Syria adopted Arabic much more quicker than the Copts, nor was it the first in Egypt, as the Milka church already had one, but it was the first Arabic gospel for the Coptic church. He also wrote a study of the Epistle of St. Paul, and one of the earliest grammars of the Coptic language in Arabic. The third brother, Al-Mu'taman, wrote a Coptic Arabic dictionary, the first serious attempt to do such a thing outside of liturgical context. And like I said, it wasn't just this family that was building up the Arabic foundation for the Coptic Church. No, he also had certain Gerges al Makin, a historian who wrote a world chronicle, a secular narration of events mostly concerned with armies and kings, so there was very little mention of the Copts there. Then there was also Chakir ibn Rahib, whose father was the tutor of Aulad al Asel. He wrote an extensive treaty on the divinity and humanity of Christ, as well as a survey of the ecumenical councils, a Coptic grammar book, and a few other books. Lastly, coming a generation later, and marking the end of this period, was a certain Ibn Qabar. He wrote an encyclopedia of Coptic religious knowledge and traditions, spanning 24 sections with numerous supplements. It ended up, by far, the most comprehensive record of Coptic culture and laws, where, in great details, he discussed all imaginable things concerning the church. He followed up that encyclopedia with a collection of equally impressive volumes, six in total, ranging from apologetics to Coptic grammar. On the whole, here, at this very exact moment, we reached one of our cultural peaks, perhaps ever, 
or at least until the 20th century. In that short 50 years or so, the Copts produced an encyclopedia, a world history, a Copto-Arabic dictionary, a law code, full Bible commentaries, massive tomes of theological treaties, and an Arabic translation of the Bible. And the funny thing is, unlike the other golden ages, like the time of Athanasius or Cyril, or the latter half of the 20th century, this was not driven by a strong patriarchy or the social circumstances. No, this was a golden age that was not supposed to happen, in between famine, absent leadership, and a crusade. Somehow, those men of letters found enough of a space to flourish. A good thing, as we are about to enter into the darkest tunnel where everything would unravel. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time.